Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown, here today with my co-host, Kizzy Joseph. Kizzy and I will be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Verlina L. Johnson was born in Chicago and grew up in Madison and Beloit, Wisconsin, but now calls California home. She's a multimedia artist whose artwork includes drawing, painting, sculpture, puppetry, performance, and video. Her art is often figurative and conveys a narrative exploring racial and gender identity, how they're constructed, their social, cultural, political meaning, and her relationship to them. She shares her journey in expressing art from the political to the personal. What I found especially interesting, Kizzy, was how she brought her energy work, her spirituality, into her art. That's really interesting, Michelle. What really resonated for me in this conversation was how visual art can be a healing force in our lives, and not only for the artist, but the spectator, too. I loved hearing about Verlina's sacred art-making process, I felt that it was a reminder for me to always ground myself when engaging with my work. We also touched on motherhood, a journey all three of us share as black women. So true, Kizzy. And now, our conversation with Verlina L. Johnson. Verlina, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Life in California started interestingly this morning because we had two earthquakes. Wow. Yes, we had two. One was at about, I think, 4.20, 4.30 in the morning, and that one woke me from sleep. Um, mm-hmm. And then I ran to, I have a, a young son, so I ran to his room, and he didn't even wake, actually. And then there was <laughs> another one, I think, around 6.37. And I think the first one was the larger one, which was about Four point two or something like that. Yeah, but there, but you know, there's there's obviously so much just going on in, in, in the world as it relates to the pandemic and George Floyd and the, all of. I mean, politically, just everything. There's so much. So for me, just as a metaphor, lying in bed and being, you know, woke in that manner, it just it's so jarring, and it just seemed rather fitting, to be honest. <laughs> now you're originally from the Midwest. Um, and and I know you could have several places, but, you know, I know I'm from, from originally from the Midwest, and I know the first time that I was there, like, it was, like, really jarring to me. And people say, well, after a while, you just get used to them. Do you ever mm-hmm. just get used to earthquakes? You absolutely never get used to it. I, I mean, I've been here, I think, 15 <laughs> years. 
Um, and I, I remember my first earthquake, and even people who are Californians, natives, they speak about it and talk about being afraid or anxious and, and that sort of thing. So, no, you don't. And then for the people who have been here for the big one, you know, that maybe happened, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, they often reference that, oh, that was as, almost as big as such and such earthquake or whatnot. Mm. And then, of course, all of this anxiousness around waiting, you know, because there are these predictions that we're going to have another really big one. So. There's that. Now, I know like you began in, in, um, in the Midwest. Yeah. How did, and then, you know, and then I know that from there you went to you in New York, you've lived in England, you've been a, spent a lot of time in, in California. But one of the things that I noticed that you talked about was being in touch with you, and I hope I don't mess up your Salish Kutinari ancestors. And I know that they are in, is it the Flathead Reservation? How did you connect with that? Um, in, in many ways, it's, it's a kind of complicated story, as I feel oftentimes it is, because uh, my mother's uh, mother, my mother is white, and she's Salish Kootenai and, and a mixture of various white ethnicities. But um, her mother died when she was nine, and her father actually um, was an alcoholic, but he was in, in uh, he had been adopted. And so he was not very verbal about his Native American heritage. So it wasn't really until she was an adult and he passed away, I believe like in the very early 70s, that there was some land that they inherited in Montana. And as a result of that, she was contacted by the tribe and she was an inactive member and she began to you know research her heritage, but prior to that point, it wasn't anything that her father spoke about because he had been adopted by a white couple, as I understand it. I mean, his, uh-huh. his background or history is very vague, to be honest, and part of it, I'm sure, was, you know, he just simply didn't know, and other parts of it could have been some shame back in the 60s and the 70s when he would have been coming of age because of the assimilation, forced assimilation, and the uh, racism that Native people were experiencing clearly up until today, but certainly back then it was really, really bad. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was something more she, you know, delved into as an adult woman. And then she became involved in in something called Drums Along the the Rock in Wisconsin, um, and they did powwows and and, and other cultural things and began to to sort of research her heritage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're an artist, and I often ask to, like to find out, were there other people in your family who were artists, or were you just like, um, I talked to, um, we talked to, was it, Vinnie Bagwell, and she's like, she was always the kid who was drawing. Mm-hmm. What was your influence? Um, I think for me also, uh, I would just say creative creativity generally was really important to me. I consider myself a very... Um, uh, introverted person and a very shy person in many ways. And so for me to, and also, you know, to be honest, I uh, had, there was some family trauma uh, that I mm-hmm. dealt with in a lot of chaos. And I think for me, uh, my art and my imaginary world was a, a place to escape and to feel safe. And so I read a lot of books, spent a lot of time mm-hmm. by myself and started to uh, draw and paint. I have vivid memories even in elementary school of drawing and in high school as well. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, an art teacher took one of my pastels of Janet Jackson and without telling me, 
entered it into an art competition when I was about 16 or 17, and it won a first place prize. And I think it was at that point that I began to identify really as an artist and, and started, mm-hmm. you know, getting noticed for my art. But my mother, I would say, is very creative. She as well grew as a child, but it was never honed or nurtured quite in the way that I have had the privilege to do. And then my father is a blues musician. And I would say mm. just growing up with my dad and he always had guitars, usually multiple guitars, both the electric and acoustic, and he also played the harmonica and sang. So my entire life would be him just, you know, playing um, impromptu. And then when I became an adult and he was maybe in his 50s or so, he started playing in clubs and people would call him up um, and have mm-hmm. Big Jim come up and perform, you know, various uh, blues uh, pieces. He was born and raised in, in Mississippi and spent some time in Louisiana. So for him, uh, he uh, taught, self-taught when he was young, had access to a guitar, and kind of taught himself and then hung around blues musicians in, in clubs, I guess, as a young man, and uh, really gravitated towards the blues. And he had one foot, I would say, in church, and then one foot kind of like yeah. in blues. And of course, there's a lot, a lot about that conflict. But... Um, so I've done some work that specifically deals with him as a blues musician, um, and he's just an amazing storyteller. So I, I, I feel as though he tells jokes, and, and you know, I grew up hearing about Br'er Rabbit and those types of things, um, which I later then learned about at, at university. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like I tell stories with, with visual pictures, and, and I'm very interested in narratives. You know, and looking at your pictures, there's one that you uh, call Smokestack Lightning. Is that your yes. uh, when you're, is that your dad? It um, is my I father. Mean... In fact, I'm, I'm sitting across from it because mm-hmm. it's in my dining room, and um, it's a way for me to have my father in my home present. He lives in, in mm-hmm. Wisconsin currently, and so my son can grow up with him. Uh, but it's him playing a harmonica with a few of the musicians uh, that he's played with, and then there are several uh, historical blues musicians, men and women, Bessie Smith is there, Coco Taylor, um, Howling Wolf. And then there's a train that's depicted at the the bottom half or bottom fifth maybe of the painting. And that, of course, speaks of migration, uh, which Mm -hmm. mirrors his growing up. You know, he came from Mississippi to Wisconsin back, I believe, in 1963. But that's true of a lot of uh, African-Americans who took the Great Migration of course, earlier than, than that, more like in the 20s, 30s, 40s, predominantly. But um, so it has to do also with movement. So I was very interested in depicting him within a historical concept, but also giving homage to my, to my father. Mm, that's mm. nice. Yeah, just looking mm. at your work, I'm so amazed by just the, it's by, by the vibrancy of it, just the the colors and the patterns and the spirals. It's just really like you you really have to just stand and just take just take it all in. And it's just a very for me at least it's a very like mystical spiritual experience. Can you tell us, you know, what are some of the things that drive your work, your your approach or if philosophy is a better word. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. Thank you very much, by the way. Um, I feel in, in many ways um, 
privileged and, and, and I feel like you get my work just by the, the words that you've chosen to describe it. Um, I would say there are a lot of different influences um, and I can say that, you know, I spoke about my parents and, and, and what have you, but I, but I am formally trained and so um, I went to university um, and have a, a bachelor's degree in fine arts. And it was really when I was 19, 20 or so that I was exposed to African-American and African art in particular. And so for me, um, and my master's, one of my master's is in Afro-American studies, I, you know, studied about Betty Saar and about Faith Ringgold and Jacob Lawrence and a great many uh, very gifted, brilliant African-American artists and the different periods also of art in which they were looking back to Africa, I would say, in terms of this notion of an ancestral legacy. And so for me, I'm interested in identity um, and culture. And um, you'll note in, in many of my pieces, I, and, I, and I do wear dashiki a, a lot, mm-hmm. um, and even today. And there are a number of my pieces that reference that. So... To me, it speaks to that um, lineage, but also, to be honest, I mean, I love color. I love pattern. So part of it is a stylistic or an aesthetic choice, and then the other part mm. has to do with what it means symbolically uh, as it relates to, to my heritage um, and that kind of thing. So um, I have been doing a lot of my pieces are self-portraits, and even in high school I did self-portraits, and a lot of my pieces have halos um, or circles behind the head, and then Christian and art, you know, they're referred to as halos. Um, but, you know, in the Ethiopian art, they exist as well in, 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 a, in other forms. But for me, they're symbols of divinity because I truly believe with all of my heart and being that we are all divine. And so... Uh, I started using them maybe about 20 years ago or so um, in an earlier piece called I Am, for example. Um, I use it, and I Am as a statement is a very powerful statement. To me, one of the most powerful two words you can put together, and it's an affirmative statement that you put out into the universe. And so I often feel as though my paintings are meditation and also mm. uh, they're an acknowledgement of present moments. So when I look mm-hmm. at my body work and I look at my earlier self-portraits and as I was in African-American studies uh, courses and, and thinking about feminism and sort of the gaze or the way in which the subject was looking, how they were directing their eyes, I became very interested in that. So in my earlier work, a lot of times as an early feminist, I would have the, myself as the subject or the subject, often black women, looking directly out at the viewer as a, as a means to engage and so to move from a place of being an object or objectified, so as you're interested in that early on, to um, you know, being a subject who had thoughts and opinions and you know, a presence. And so there was this way I wanted to make black women and myself very central within my compositions. And so... Um, but then what you'll note is there's uh, an evolution of the eyes because I realized as I was, you know, doing things and reading around like Buddhism and I was wondering why does Buddha has, have his eyes closed, always depicted mm-hmm. in that manner. It dawned on me, of course, that he's being introspective. 
right? So um, what I began to, as I began to meditate and um, really think about myself as a spiritual being, as a soul um, in a body and with a mind, is, is that um, I wanted there to be balance in terms of my presence or my beingness. And so to kind of represent that pictorially, I began to show my eyes closed. And so I was playing with also the tilt of my head. So oftentimes it, my chin is tilted slightly down in reverence and sort of this meditative pose with the eyes closed showing an intersection. So really to me, the body of work and the way I depict myself, and I, and I, and I put some of my self-portraits up, new portraits that aren't even actually on my website, because I notice these patterns and trends, and whether we're conscious or unconscious as creators of art, there are often these things that exist. And so I'm interested in the, the intentionality of that and what it is that I'm saying about myself and about others and my relationship mm. to the world, about my identity, um, and that sort of thing. And to me, that is really my life's purpose, is to embody and have my work embody love. And so things like uh, spirals, which mean infinity or the only constant is change as a symbol, uh, is present for that reason as that reminder, if you will, that visual reminder. And about four or five years ago, I was sitting with my work and I passed one of my altars, one of my multiple altars in my, in my house, um, and, or altar spaces, if you will, and I saw one of my paintings that I had done several years prior to that. When I did the painting, I was a lot heavier and I had very short hair, actually, mm -hmm. um, and it was natural. And, but in this painting I had done, I had longer locks that were about shoulder length. And I, I had this eureka moment and I thought, oh my God, I painted myself several years ago as if I would look a particular way. Now that wasn't my intention at all, but I glimpsed mm. myself in a way and I felt I feel art is so powerful on many, many, many levels. But mm -hmm. when I noted that, I was thinking I put all of these symbols in my work, which are important, right? They're visual reminders of things that are important, values, beliefs, etc. Um, the capture moments and so forth. But I also, at that time, as we mentioned earlier, I, I had taken a couple of Reiki courses, and I was very interested in prana and the energy of things. So I actually often or almost always now have crystals with me when I paint. On my mm -hmm. painting surface, I smudge with sage or uh, other things, um, and I do it several times to set an intention to get vibrationally in a particular like uh, open through my seven chakra and allow, you know, energy to flow through me and to, and I feel inspired in that way. And then I realized that not only did I want to represent symbolically certain things, but I wanted to imbue all of my work with energy because I do feel that objects and things, all things have energy and energy is just transferred. Every, everything is energy um, and it's very connected. So there's this interconnectedness. And so that is one of the things that I, that I also uh, very intentionally started doing in my work several years ago. Um, so as I'm working. Um, and I could talk more about the symbolism and the birds mm -hmm. and like various other elements or whatever you'd like. But, um, yeah. That, that energy resonates with me because I have a lot of art and, you know, 
I feel that energy, even to where it's going to be. And I can tell people that, you know, you know, some people like they say, oh, well, I've got a green couch, so I have to have a green picture. But for me, it is like, okay, I'll have a sense of the energy that's coming from the piece of art and where it's supposed to be. And mm-hmm. I'll move furniture. I'll get rid of furniture because there's something about that that energy that's coming from that, and every time that you go by there, you sort of sense it. And mm-hmm. that really resonates when you're talking, when I heard you talking about, you know, that energy that comes from it. And I know as an artist, and, and I thought that was also fascinating, how you talked, how you had crystals, and you would smudge, and that, that you are, you're not painting something to go over a couch. You are putting an energy into it. And, mm-hmm. um, so, and, and I think that maybe that's a lot of what I was, you know, I had mentioned to you in a, in a message. You know, I looked at a couple of them, and, I, and I, I sensed something. I felt that energy where, no, it wasn't me, but I looked at this woman, and in her I felt the energy. So, I mean, I think that, that that's so great that you intentionally do that. I noticed that one of the other things that you did, which I think is amazing, and I, you know, I, 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 I searched looking for it. That your um, MFA thesis had been witness to whiteness, and it was a multimedia mm-hmm. puppet performance. Now I know a lot mm-hmm. of people. When I was looking at you said what you did, and you have puppetry. I know that some people would go like puppets, you know. But mm-hmm. if you look at puppets, they aren't just you know they aren't stick figures. They aren't just a hand in a sock. You know, they're these things. Can you tell us about Witness to Whiteness and why you chose that as your thesis project? Mm-hmm. Yes, I would love to. Thank you for asking the question. Um, when I was working on my master's degree, I simultaneously actually had a solo exhibition at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And I worked with uh, Professor Frida Heitzis-Vergorgis, who's an incredible artist and art historian of African-American and African art. And um, one of the things I started doing is making a series called Warrior Women Series. Um, mm-hmm. She actually encouraged me, and, sh- and we looked at, you know, the Betty Stars and later Allison Starr and Renee Stout and a number of different uh, African-American uh, sculptors, and I started creating these figures. And um, I'm not sure exactly why I, I initially started making joints or hinged um, limbs on these figures, which were multimedia and fabric and broken mirror and shell and beads. And uh, again, I would say, no doubt, very influenced by African art, the, the masquerading art and some of the other forms that I had been seeing. Um, and I uh, called them warrior women. And they, at that time, even had crystals um, embedded within them. I was interested in masks the notions of masking and armor and, and, and of course, these very powerful figures, uh, female figures. And then I began to uh, take woodworking and carving courses. So I'm actually, carving is one of the things that I love and I find it very meditative. And when I build puppets, my favorite forms are marionettes, um, which Troy, uh, who is the primary puppet in Witness to Whiteness, is a marionette um, that I really was interested in how puppets could basically create meaning. And initially, when I started using them, they were more symbolic. 
and I would construct them, and they were more uh, figurative and not meant to be performed, per se, because at that time, I didn't consider myself a performer. I was just interested in the objects and this, this suggestion of their movement and notions of power and manipulation and things of that nature. But then what, what happened is I started taking, um, when I was at the universe, or the School of the Art Institute of Chicago in uh, working on my MFA in sculpture, I started working with puppet tiers um, and in um, puppet troops or in puppet theater, constructing puppets. And I really enjoyed that. And again, I didn't really consider myself a performer per se, uh, or, but I'm a conceptual artist, so I had this idea. And I was at a panel um, and by this point, I had my master's in, in African-American studies with an emphasis in art history, and I had, you know, written extensively and researched extensively notion, uh, notions about race and identity and my multiracial and multicultural identity and things of that nature. But I was at a panel discussion at the Art Institute, and the entire panel was about blackness. There were about six different panelists talking. There was somebody from the Caribbean. There was somebody, you know, various uh, aspects of blackness. And I put my hand up at the end during the Q&A session as an audience member, and I simply said, well, what is whiteness? Hmm. There was no sound. Like, nobody had anything to say. We had a, a room full of about probably 50 people, and no one said anything. So from that question, hmm. I, as an artist, said, huh. I want to explore then what is whiteness, not only what is whiteness like historically, because I was interested in history and context and race as a social construct, but what is whiteness to me as somebody who is multiracial and multicultural, who has a white mother and a white brother who was raised as many black people are in a white community and my relationship to that and, and, and both blackness and whiteness and otherness and my being female and my also being queer or a lesbian identified person. And so I wanted to deal with that. And so in order to do that, and this was such a fun project, I created this alter ego named Troy. And Troy really represents an aspect of me. So what I did in the narrative is I thought of all of the super uber white things like Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody um, <laughs> as an example and peeling rubber. And my brother had a Mustang car, and so I had him peel rubber. But what the piece is really is a multimedia piece, and it's a six-minute video of me performing Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody with a drum kit player, a guitarist who was really good, and we performed this in a bar context. Ironically, the, the same club my father performed blues music, but the, the owner of the bar let us use the space and mix the sounds. And then I um, had this narrative of the other. So... I was singing Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody with this two, these two other musicians, with Troy, the two-and-a-half-foot marionette, at a keyboard that I had constructed. And then I interspersed different scenes of a one-night stand that Troy, the marionette, had with an unknown woman, uh, because mm. one-night stands and getting drunk and pornography. Like, I really just thought of all of the stereotypes of, of white culture that I could think of. And I felt like an expert on whiteness, just having a white brother and being raised. And I think many of us are. I think of the boys as double consciousness and about how we, you know, code switch in terms of culture and what have you. Um, but then I built this six-foot UFO, um, and I suspended it uh, from the ceiling. And so for my MFA thesis, 
there was a six-foot UFO, and I was interested in notions of the other, an alien, but I also was intrigued by this idea, and I was referencing that of all of the alien abductions throughout history or within America, I had never seen a black person say, oh, yeah, I was abducted, and this is my abduction story. Never. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, read and watch mm. shows. And so that to me was a very white concept or notion. But then I came across Barney somebody who was an abductee, according to, his, to what he said, but he was married to a white woman, and I thought that was intriguing. I was intrigued by that. And so um, – in the installation, there's this, this UFO and Troy is being, you know, like he's being beamed up inside. And then beside it is a, the six-foot, or sorry, the six-minute video of me singing Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. So it's really an exploration, like I say, of whiteness and my relationship to it. Um, you know, what it meant for me to sing Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, which I learned is a very complicated uh, song. Um, and we did it in a single take, and then I, you know, using Final Cut Pro, edited it and made it look like a video, a music video. And so that's another cultural reference, I think, because I'm like VH1 sort of uh, of that generation where music videos okay. were. I just I remember when they first came out. Um, so that's, that's to me, um, is what that piece is, because to me, whiteness is so, it's such a universal concept that most people don't think about it and take for granted, you know, books like, you know, um, When the Irish Became White was very interesting to me. And um, there, there are lots of texts, you know, that deal with whiteness, but many people don't talk about it or under, understand that such a thing exists because we're so fascinated with, on some level, talking about blackness and, and pathologizing it really oftentimes you know, in, the, in an American context. When you hear, you know, this, this how we say black lives matter, then you'll hear particularly white people say, well, white lives matter. Do you ever think, like, if you were to go back and redo this uh, or a today's version, how would that, you know, uh, witness to whiteness fit in context with what we're talking about now, particularly when they all want to say, well, well, all lives matter, and, you know, Mm-hmm. in that conversation. Yeah. To, to me, Witness to Whiteness is a parody, though. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's a, it's a point of conversation. So I think that if, if an audience, and I don't know because it's not been screened in a really long time, um, but if it were screened in today's context and people were having a conversation, I'm sure many of these things would come out um, because I think that, uh, and, and I've heard some really good uh, responses to that. Uh, and, and, and to me, that they're very different things. It's like saying if there was a house on fire and a fire truck were coming to extinguish the fire and somebody in the neighboring house said, but my house matters too. And then you would simply respond, yeah, but your house isn't on fire. This is the house that's mm-hmm. on fire right now. So I think mm-hmm. that's a separate topic than like thinking about sort of culture and thinking about um, – ways in which there's a privilege to being so standard um, that there's an invisibility to that. You know, because certainly there's lots written and talked about, like Ralph Ellison and the Invisible Man talks about invisibility as an issue. But I think when we talk about whiteness being invisible, it's because it's such an understood standard. It's 
You know, it's sort of like the starting point for everything. When you talk about certain things, you just make certain assumptions, um, I think. And I'm not talking about within communities of color or within black communities, of course. I'm talking more, quote, mainstream general things, you know. And if you were to ask white people about their whiteness, many of them would not have responses because I've asked many of them. And I think that's true even today. Although I, I'll never forget when my brother and I were having a conversation and I think I was interviewing him and I spoke to myself as a black woman because I'm a black woman who identifies also as being multiracial. But that's very important for me, my identity and this hierarchy for, for me personally. Um, and he said, Verlina, but you are, and this is my white brother, by the way, he said, Verlina, you are as white as you are black. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just say you're white? And I said, well, there See, and that's a very privilege, right, for him to even think that that's an option for somebody who looks mm-hmm. like me. Mm-hmm. That I would have a desire to, to claim being a white woman, which I wouldn't. Um, and then secondly, mm-hmm. that if I were to do that, I would be laughed at, ridiculed, and told I was just crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. but it's interesting that in his brain, you know, he's just thinking, you know, this additive, you're black, you're white, and so forth. He has no concept of race in America and the way that, all, most black people do. I mean, I'm not saying we have a monolithic brain around it, but there, I think there are certain things that are understood by many of us, let's say, around mm-hmm. racism and its existence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and along those lines, how do you, what has been your experience navigating art spaces as a black queer woman? Mm. Um. When you say navigating, could you phrase the question slightly differently, or what do you mean navigating art spaces? Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, your experience in the art world with other artists, um, I, I think that there's the assumption, and maybe that still stands, I'm not sure, that, you know, the art world um, is overwhelmingly white and privileges white mm-hmm. artists. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like wondering, mm-hmm. you know, how your identity and that space kind of interact. Um, it's an interesting question. And, and I think it's interesting that I would ask for clarification. But part of that is, is because like Gloria Anzaldúa talks about the borderlands and talks about the in-between spaces. And I feel like I very much have uh, find myself in those spaces and find myself most comfortable in those in-between spaces. So I think a lot of people glamour, I mean, they, you know, they, they try to assert themselves in a particular canon, a particular conversation, a particular space, and want to be legitimate in those spaces. And I understand that. And, and I think there's, uh, there's an, uh, a whole series of conversations that could be had about that. But I think for me, that because I came out when I was 17, so very, very, very young, um, or fairly young, especially back in the 80s when I did it in, in, in the Midwest, um, I think that I've, I'm accustomed to being, like, outside, right? So, and mm-hmm. also as a multiracial person, I'm accustomed to not being this nor that, but, but both or in between. And so I've always just um, danced to my own beat, so to speak, and, and really... 
Um, you know, I've been very interested in outsider art, for example, and craft, and I put these things in quotations, um, because as a, even as a woodcarver, you know, one who does puppetry, as you said, you know, people would perhaps minimize it or say that it's not an art form or whatnot. I, I've often gravitated towards those forms and those things, and I feel like the binary of having fine art versus craft of having, you know, the, the academia versus and trained versus untrained, these to me are very arbitrary um, distinctions and they serve a power structure that suggests that whiteness and maleness and this notion of the creative genius producing work of a particular type in a particular moment, these things should be given uh, value while what others are doing, creatively speaking, isn't as important. And I've never, ever, ever bought into that. And I've always gone against that and what I've done. And I, I've done, I feel, what I've been called to do by my spirit and by my call. Mm-hmm. Even the fact that I call myself spiritual and I'm part of academia sometimes gets me a sideways glance. You know? <laughs> because people, there's such a yeah. divide. People don't think you can be intellectual and be spiritual. Um, to be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. that, again, this binary, but that's something, the whole binary construct is something, a notion that I learned about in African-American studies. And so for me, it's been very useful and very liberating to recognize and understand that I can be both or all of those things. Multiplicity is like a beautiful word to me and is, as is intersectionality. Um, and, and the same is true of my not only being a woman and obviously female identified, um, but also being a lesbian woman um, has been very, very important. And I, and I think that I am who I am and I do the work that I do and the places or people who want to acknowledge what I do and invite me to participate in what they're doing, those are the places I wish to be um, amongst my tribe or my people or whoever feels like my work speaks to them. And clearly I would love exposure. I would love to share my work to more and more and more people. And that's something I feel like I'm just, even though I've been sharing my work publicly, you know, since I was probably in my 20s or what have you, I feel more called now to do that because I feel like my voice and my vision are more solidified and I have a more clear understanding of what my purpose is and what my, the purpose is of my artwork, which I've not had before. So I feel people will be interested in my work and if there's a venue that isn't, then that's not the venue for me. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take our first break here, and we'll be right back and continue our conversation here on Collections by Michelle Brown. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com.
And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. I just noticed something, Verlina, which had made me chuckle on side. I was looking at your art, and I'm kind of like, wow, this really speaks to me. I, you know, I love it. If it was someplace, I'd probably go in it. And it occurred to me, <laughs> I just noticed, I was looking at your artist bio, and one of the things that you did is you've done a cover of the journal Sinister Wisdom. I know the mm-hmm. editor, and I have written for Sinister Wisdom, so probably somewhere around here, I have a copy of Sinister Wisdom with your art on it. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Isn't that something? I mean, it's just like, all of a sudden, it's like jumped out at me like, oh, Sinister Wisdom. <laughs> you know, when you were doing it, one of the things that Julie and I had talked about is like, part of what they do is they try to send them to incarcerated women. And often mm-hmm. that they find that they, they come back, you know. And I know that as you're doing your art, I know that sometimes part of it does involve the audience, but often you do what's in your spirit. Did mm-hmm. you think about who would be reading Sinister Wisdom and what you wanted to represent to say to the lesbians who are reading Sinister Wisdom, like, hey, this is for you. This is our journal. I, I, I actually did not. <laughs> Ironically, mm-hmm. I, I think that um, that particular drawing um, started out while I was at work, we'll say on a break, and I was doing mm-hmm. what I would consider initially a, a doodle, and I had a ballpoint pen on a legal pad, and I just started mm-hmm. drawing a face and a hand and a heart, and then I um, depicted a, a ship, a sailboat, uh, with winds and a spiral. And so for me, I literally was just very um, inspired to do that, and not even a lot of my work just uh, evolved or unfolds. Uh, not all of it. I, I do a lot of what I would call very journalistic type works, and I fill journals also with these types of drawings, um, but they're very spontaneous. And so that particular drawing was that. And then once I finished it, I felt connected to it. And then mm-hmm. I saw the um, uh, Sinister Wisdom Journal and their call for artwork. And I knew, of course, you know, the type of journal that it was. And I chose uh, that piece and probably several others to submit for consideration. And that's how that piece got in the journal or, or on the cover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, you have your, your past. I mean, we talk about intersectionality, but you have so many paths, like you have the Native American part, your father, your mother, your white brothers, honey, you could be, all of these things do that. And then you sort of like move into spirituality. You talk mm-hmm. about how your art took a change. How did you, and I'm going to let uh, Kizzy go on and, and talk a little bit more about Reiki and I know she's involved more, you know, in Reiki, but was that, did it seem like an inevitable path that you would lead you there, that you were on your way to this, in touch with this energy and spirituality? Mm-hmm. A- absolutely, because my, my earlier work um, was very politicized and very overtly political. And when I, what I mean by that is I, I would do pieces like I've done a, it's probably about three, three and a half foot Mumia Abul Jamal marionette, mm-hmm. uh, carved mm-hmm. walnut wood, painted uh, straight black with uh, locks from from my head that I that I had cut, and and then 
put onto Mumia. And I, at that time, I lived in Chicago, uh, and I was going to the Art Institute, and I had gone to um, police p- brutality demonstrations. And I had a sign that I had painted, and I realized that people were looking at the work, and they were very interested in, in the art. And they would ask me questions, and I thought, wow, that's very alluring, getting people interested in these political themes or messages by getting them interested in the imagery. And so I did this uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal piece. And so a lot of my work at that time was, were things like that, the witness to whiteness. Um, I did a piece on blackface minstrelsy and uh, an installation as well at that time. And then my experiences as a black woman in a predominantly white um, sculpture program at the Art Institute of Chicago. In fact, I have never had uh, or seldom have had black women in my classes. And so a lot of questions would arise like, why are all your figures black? You know, <laughs> I said, well, they're not all black. You know, 97% mm-hmm. of them are. You're very astute. However, why is that a question? And why aren't you asking why 100% of yours are of white people? And so mm. that's what I was talking about, the normalization of whiteness and how it's invisible. Uh, but, my, but who I was depicting was questioned because people felt excluded somehow because I wasn't depicting things that looked like them. And we can get into representation. But I was doing that. But, but what I realized as I was learning about um, law of attraction, as an example, is that I, I truly feel that what we think about, we produce and create. And so I knew and have known for around 20 years that I, I, you know, read books like Conversations with God um, by Donald Neil Walsh, I think that's his name, um, though I reverse his name sometimes. Um, And I, you know, felt that I was a very spiritual person but not religious, that um, I was interested, interested in these ideas and about love, and I realized love was such a powerful, beyond an emotion and a verb. It was just such a huge concept that I wanted my work to talk about self-love and love of community and love of others and how we, not only we as human beings, but we as beings, I'm vegan also, animals and trees, like we all have, um, I believe, uh, not only energy, but a beingness to us, we exist in this world, um, that I wanted to represent that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, things like police brutality and Mumia Abu-Jamal and, you know, his case, this, this uh, innocent journalist who spent many, many years on death row, like all of those things are critically important. But when I think of myself as a visual artist and what my contributions are, and what my, uh, what my truth is and what I'm called to do. And when I sit in meditation and I'm very quiet, I know that it's to produce these positive, to me, beautiful, inspiring, uplifting um, types of work. If I am called to do something else, like I did a piece that where I'm screaming, actually, this very quick piece of me screaming. I did a uh, self-portrait selfie first and then based it on that. It was right after George Floyd was murdered and all Mm -hmm. of these things were happening. I felt very frustrated. And so in that moment, I wanted to capture that, but there's still a halo and I'm still divine. And that emotion is an aspect of my humanness, right? Because we all feel uh, a range of emotions. So I'll do that. But but overwhelmingly, there's a peacefulness that I'm wanting to not only exude in my work energetically and pictorially, but 
that I want to promote and nurture and remind us that we all have that within ourselves and we have access to it all the time. And our society is riddled with so much anxiousness and anxiety and fear and Mm -hmm. so forth and so on. So I, I would love my work to remind people to find stillness within themselves and to, as much as possible, maintain that sense of serenity and calm and peace, joy, love, bliss, happiness. Mm-hmm. You know, you have two that, it's interesting, the names are similar, but as I look at them, I, see, I, I get a different feeling for each of them. One is when the light kisses the darkness, and then you did mm-hmm. the light kisses the darkness. Well, I mm-hmm. tend to, it just was something about the first one, when the light kisses the darkness, there's something about that one that, you know, really resonates with me, and it, there's a warmth that I feel. Um, the, the names are similar. You, you've got, you know, if people would say, well, describe them, you know, there's a lot of similar pieces to it, but they're so drastically different. Can you talk mm-hmm. about those two? Mm-hmm. So one of the pieces is relatively small, um, 11 by 17 maybe or something like that, and it's a watercolor uh, painting done on paper. And that one came first, and I was very mm-hmm. interested in this idea of the, sh- the shadow self and the dark night of the soul as a concept. And so the shadow self uh, is something I think that comes not only from psychology but, but spirituality uh, or spiritual text um, is this idea that we all have these shadow selves within us. So um, I love promoting the light. I feel like we're all light and light is critically mm-hmm. important. But I think that many of us, you know, you can think of it in terms of an emotion like depression or, you know, sort of a more negative. You can think in terms of negative versus positive. But there are these, this yin and this yang uh, within, our, within us, I believe, and there's this sort of balancing that exists, but I, but I feel like, you know, I have on varying levels dealt with my darkness and processed mm. it and, you know, understood, for example, I mentioned childhood trauma, understood where that was coming from. And, you know, there are things uh, in the world, uh, oppression being one of them, which are very dark right, which comes from very sinister or evil or destruction is a, an aspect of that. And part of that is you can see with that within nature, so it exists, uh, and it's a part of who we are, but I feel it has to do with our choices. So we can choose to focus on the darkness, if you will, within ourselves, or we can choose and nurture the light and allow that to come in and, you know, and to sort of, in our daily decisions and, and, and how we wish to move through the world. And so I often ask myself, what would love do in this situation? Let's say I'm having a very mm. conflicting situation at work or perhaps with a friend or a family member. I ask myself, what would love do? And so that's myself asking, what would life do? And so I, I feel at times, even within myself, that there has been a struggle. So when I say that light kisses the darkness, there's an acceptance that it exists. Mm-hmm. within them. And so there are words embedded that are not very visible, such as I am love, 
mm-hmm. you know, is, is kind of hidden within the context. And a lot of my work, there are these nuances also that you don't necessarily, you, I, it's hard for me to capture in pictures, um, but you can see when you're looking at the, the work and a light is reflecting and I use these iridescent paints, for example, where I do things very lightly. And so you really have to look for that so that I am love, I am light, and that kind of thing. And then there are the spirals. But I also took a print of my hand by painting my hand gold and then pressing it into the thing. And there's nothing more personal than, of course, a, a fingerprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and, they, you know, there are various artists who have, you know, made prints of their their bodies. And I've used my lips to, to begin a painting, for an example, um, and big things like that. But I, I was very interested in, in that aspect as well, but that has to do with the shadow self, and then the, the dark night of the soul is a moment before one comes into enlightenment. Um, there's mm-hmm. this idea that before one comes into enlightenment, oftentimes we experience this tremendous low. Many of us describe it, you know, as it's just energetically feeling very low, very dark, maybe there's hopelessness, maybe there's, and it just seems very overwhelming, and that often they say in spiritual texts, occurs right before this ushering kind of of a new dawn or this rebirth of oneself in the spiritual, in, in terms of consciousness, in terms of who we really truly are, um, separate from um, kind of sort of the physical. We, we so focus on the physical, our physical manifestation and our mental faculties and our intellect and those types of things, but just from a, a spiritual perspective. And so for me, I'm wanting to embrace the totality of who I am as all of these things simultaneously, but giving primacy to the spiritual consciousness and awareness that I feel I am. And I feel we all have the capacity to be mindful in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really beautiful. And just, you know, thinking about Reiki and, you know, I guess, the misconception about Reiki is that the practitioner is healing the client, whereas in actuality, the practitioner mm-hmm. is only activating the client's healing power. So mm-hmm. the client is actually, you know, healing themselves, that the, the practitioner is solely the channel um, mm-hmm. and the, the power of art and your work, especially in being able to trigger that healing process, just sounds amazing. And I, I definitely just feel that um, just looking at your work. Thank you. I mean, I think there's a, there's a vulnerability that happens, um, I think, for all of us when we um, allow ourselves to be authentically who we are and then do this in a public um, context. So I think for many years, I would say I was honing my skills, I was healing myself because besides love, the other component of my work I feel does have to do with healing. Um, And I think that before, I think it's so critically important for us to focus, and Audre Lorde speaks eloquently about this, and and many feminists do, to be honest, that she she has a statement about this, but this idea of to to care for oneself, self-care and self-healing are so important. Um, And I think sometimes we think that that's being selfish um, Mm. or self-serving or or that type of thing. Um, And I I feel opposite of that. I feel like if you, if we feel either broken, 
or we feel unhappy, if we feel as though we're going through the motions of life, but we're not feeling joy and bliss and, and lightness, etc. that I feel, I believe in energy, which is what the prana is. And so when we raise our individual uh, energy and we ground ourselves and uh, you spoke about furniture in your home having a particular energy and you would either move it or get rid of it get rid of it in accordance to how you felt about it. And I think we as human beings, of course, and animals as well, we're, we are also very energetic beings. We're purely energy. And so when we raise our energy, I feel, and we heal ourselves, by virtue of having done that, we impact other people. Anyone we come into contact with, whether it's a moment that we just, and we don't even have to utter a word. It's like when you're standing at the kitchen sink and somebody in the house comes behind you and you can feel them before they even physically are in your presence, but you can just sense that energy. So or when things are angry, you can sense, you know, part of the body language, so that visual cue, but I think it's also energy. And so for me, I think I'm very aware of that, and I knew that I needed to, to heal um, through therapy and other things. There are many modalities one can use for healing, but I think for me, Reiki was a part of that, having being able to self-heal, but also seeing myself as a light worker and one who is instru- interested in the healing of others and the planet. And so for me, my work in that regard is sort of like I feel like a vessel, and these are, these are, these are tools to that end. Uh, to, you know, and to me, again, aesthetics and beauty and meaning and all of those things are important, but ultimately... I'm interested in, in having healed myself and helping others to recognize they have the power within themselves to heal themselves as well. Um, so Reiki gave me terminology and it gave me tools and ways of thinking about things that I know I've done on some level, even as a you know, 17, 18, 19-year-old person, I felt as though I would lay hands on, say, my mother who had an injured knee and would work energy before I even knew what prana was you know that Mm -hmm. is something I was called to do because I think spirit there's a consciousness a higher consciousness that we all have access to with communicating whispering to me that this was my calling so to speak and I feel like I resisted or I was hesitant but then there was a part of me also I feel like I was getting ready if you will Mm -hmm. yeah I mean Especially, like like you said, many people think that self-care is something that you're not supposed to, to do, but self-care is so important. And I find that particularly around women who are doing the work, they're doing healing work, they're doing other kinds mm-hmm. of work. We talked to um, this woman in New York, Zoe Flowers, and she was talking about doing the work and taking self-care, taking time for self-care. And I know that mm-hmm. Adrian Marie Brown she wrote a whole book on pleasure activism about, and that part of it involves, you know, if you're doing it and you're not taking care of yourself and getting pleasure out of what you're doing, you're not mm-hmm. doing, you're able to do what you should be doing out there in the world better. And, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting that you have been able to, and often you see that in some of, of your work as I look at it, you know, there is that, that energy that comes through and that, the spirituality of it. Uh, I, I keep going back to looking at it. I see different ones, and I can even like, yeah, I know that a lot of them are you, but there's a way that you're, you're looking. It's like 
I can feel you meditating or in your, or mm. you're thinking of going to a, uh, a special one. I know the one night that you just, I mean, did last year. I mean, it's like I look at that and you want to, like, close your eyes and just sort of, like, meditate or, or go to that place and do it. And sometimes, you know, it's not just sort of sitting there going, oh, a picture, mm. a piece of art can help facilitate mm-hmm. you going to that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you? Have you gotten feedback from people since you started to, to do the energy work and, and involve that and engage it? Have you found the response to your work when you talk to people is different from, like, your political days? I, for sure. I did a, uh, an exhibit. Where I did the, the two last exhibits I did it was interesting because one of them was at UCLA, it was for African-American studies department, and that was more of a retrospective, and I was talking about the influence of African-American studies on my work. So um, that was one context, and I had some of my work exhibited in the space that I was giving my presentation. And then I did um, uh, an exhibit in a place called The Situation Room, which is um, a feminist space in L.A., and it's a very small gallery. Uh, it's a converted garage, actually, um, but made into a gallery space. And I had a piece that I carved called Meditating Woman, which is a, like a three-and-a-half-foot uh, figurative, abstract figurative sculpture that's uh, sort of a figure, but it's also an altar, and her hands are clasped in front of her. And there's an area in her fourth chakra area or chest area where you can place a crystal and then um, I put a lotus flower in her hands and then her um, torso area is hollow with sort of a, it's kind of hard to explain, but it's hollow and she's round in a sense. So it's, and there's this pierced area at the bottom portion of her body that's to resemble like a church or a spiritual place. It has this arc and you can place a candle or something to illuminate. So there's this illumination that occurs within the figure, which kind of mirrors that. And so I'm thinking about all of these things, and I placed it within the context of the the gallery space. And so for me then, the entire gallery became a spiritual sort of space, and I transformed it, which is what I wanted to do energetically and burn stage again, and I had my different pieces up. But the way people moved in that space very quietly you know, there's a piece called, um, I'm not sure if it's on my website or not, but it's called Protected. And it's a, it's a self-portrait of me uh, in acrylic, and it's a large format. And the halo is, um, uh, there's a, a rainbow, basically, a rainbow that encircles the halo. Um, and then there's a feather in one of my locks that goes right across my fourth chakra. And it's mm-hmm. called Protected. And then right next to that piece was a, a piece, uh, a self-portrait of myself when I was uh, seven years old based on a photograph. And it was entitled, Sissy's Superpower Was Surviving Abuse. Mm. And um, that piece was very unusual for me, but I literally could not not do the piece. As I was painting it, I wanted to reproduce this uh, photograph of myself at age seven and very innocent, large Afro brown dress with flowers, very seventies looking, of course. And um, the colors were very dark and muted. And you know, a lot of my work is very colorful. And, mm-hmm. but I, but I drew the halo and the halo um, was gold, but I was inspired 
to put the words um, in red, um, you know, and things that were very violent, actually. Um, and um, when I was painting the piece, uh, I almost felt like I was doing this inner child work and recognizing the little girl within me who was still very wounded, who wanted to feel heard. Because so often I seemed so whole and self-confident and assured and, you know, so forth in my paintings. And then there, yet there's this aspect of me, the shadow self, if you will, who doesn't feel that way. And she wanted to communicate this out. And so she did. And then the title, Sissy Superhero, and Sissy was my nickname growing up, Sissy Superhero Power was Surviving Abuse. And then I actually created a cape, which I hand-sewed and put crystals on it and an emblem which I had produced, and it hung next to that. And when my son came to the exhibit, I took the cape and I covered my painting with it so he couldn't see it because it's a kind of a disturbing painting. And then when he left, actually, I removed the cape and hung it right next to it on a a little sort of hook. And um, if you think about it, like that piece and the meditating woman, you know, and then all of these self-portraits, it is really about healing and, and reminding us, I think, of the importance of that for each of us. And so I think even clinicians, as I understand it, when they're going through their programs, they, they, he, they have to heal themselves. <laughs> you know, that's really mm-hmm. important. They talk about their childhood self and they bring stuff up and they, you know, deal with it because I think that we are that important, that we deserve to feel whole and healed. Um, and I feel, um, like, critically important. And there's a part of me that's both very self-aware, and I think Frida Kahlo is by far, she's, like, one of my favorite artists. And I think even mm-hmm. as a young woman and as a teenager, I, I felt an affinity for her because of her imagery, her symbolism, and her, the, the violence that she had endured and the trauma, but how she depicted herself in such a confident, defiant, strong but vulnerable, you know, kind of way. Uh, and and she's very honest, I think, on many respects, as well as constructing this persona of herself. So it's complicated. But uh, she said, you know, she did all these self-portraits because she knew herself most, you know, to some extent. Mm-hmm. She spent a lot, of time, a lot of time alone while she was healing from her various accidents and surgeries and so forth and, and so on. Yeah, mm-hmm. from the surgeries she had. And so... Um, I think, you know, there's something to, to be said about that. But, you know, the painting for me as a process is a meditation. And, and I think also it is an opportunity for me to, and what I've been thinking about recently actually is going back to that painting I refer to that for me uh, was an acknowledgement that I had produced a, a, an image of myself in the future is that their affirmations, and Louise Hay uh, is one of the big affirmation cursed people around, but many people speak of them, and the power of our words and our claiming certain things, um, you know, and putting things out in the universe as though they are. So they're not prayers. We're not asking for things. We are saying, um, Abraham does similar types of things, um, but we are saying essentially that we are these things. And so for me, I feel like I painted myself into acknowledging my divinity that I've always had, but I've not always felt that way. I've not always felt confident. I've not, you know, always felt secure. And so I was painting it until I realized it, until I acknowledged it, until I understood it, until I owned it. 
And so for me, that's also the importance of that. And so there's a piece that I did that is the embodiment of love, and that is on the website, uh, my website, The Embodiment of Love. And that, mm-hmm. for me, is an affirmation of me calling forth a lover. I had, you know, I, I had been divorced for a n- number of years at this point, maybe five years, and um, I had been outside of a, a partnership, and I wanted to call her forth. And so for me, when I did this, uh, depicted this uh, image of myself around my halo. I put all of the words and the characteristics of the type of woman I wanted to call to myself. She would be compassionate and spiritual and loving and fun and, you know, all of these, all of the words. And so those were these activating words that would call her forth. And I recently, um, so several years later, did a piece uh, called Divine Love, and I, I depict myself and, and my girlfriend. And for me, that is a, like, in terms of call and response, it was a response to the lover that I was calling forth. And I look back, and she epitomizes all of those characteristics that I had said mm-hmm. I wanted in a in the next partner. And um, that is very different for me as well, because I often depict myself alone. But in terms of the, the law of attraction principle, by depicting myself alone, you're essentially saying you'll always be alone. And I think being mm-hmm. alone and being solitary is fine, but I wanted to, again, affirm this new relationship or newer relationship by depicting myself and, and, and my girlfriend. And so that was huge for me. But so, um, okay, well, we're going to take our second break, and we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And if you're just joining us, we're finishing our conversation with Elena Johnson. She's an artist. Uh, I mean, just amazing work. We've talked, you know, and through your work, you sort of honored your father. You, t- you sort of showed your whole journey, you know, in different aspects of your life as to going back and looking at the one where you were a child and what had gone on then and I can see as I look at it and see you changing the transformation and the growing in you. You are a mom. You're a mother of a black child, Mm -hmm. a black male child. How Mm -hmm. did motherhood change your perception or what did you want to bring, make you want to bring into your world? And then, I look at the pictures, I see that love, 
that you have for your son. I mean, you know, and you see your son, and you think of particularly in these times when we know that black boys, you know, Mm -hmm. our black sons are born, you know. I was telling someone once, like, from the time that my son went out first to ride his bike, we were like, be careful, don't go too far, because I knew that someone might see him and, and, and hurt him, and you wanted to protect him. How did becoming a mother and being a mother of a young black male child, how did that change mm-hmm. you, and how are you reflecting that in your art? Mm-hmm. For me, it was an incredibly unexpected and transformative experience. Um, I think as somebody who's been always, or from the time I was very young, very women-centered and very much a feminist and, you know, sort of, I didn't have my son until I was 39. It was a very deliberate choice. Uh, My then wife at the time and I uh, decided to have a child together. And um, when he came into the world, I literally brought him into the nursery uh, after he had just been born. And I thought, wow, I cannot believe, and I said this to myself, I cannot believe they let me take him home. Because he was this little, precious, beautiful baby. And I didn't have much experience with children or raising certainly babies and, and what have you. And I feel like I have learned so much about just mothering and being a parent, but also about maleness that I couldn't even have fathomed. You know, I was, mm. you know, becoming a conscious feminist back in the late 80s, early 90s, in which you know, gender was the social construction, right, except for we had different parts of our anatomy and, and so forth that distinguished us. But a lot of that I thought and I had read was uh, due to society training us to be a certain way. Women are softer and more feminine, more nurturing, and, uh, you know, boys are more this or males are more this because we teach them to be that way. And my son was, was raised with a little kitchenette set, he has stuffed animals and dolls. And don't get me wrong, he is a very nurturing, very sensitive, very introspective, very thoughtful little being. He's a, to me, you can tell even the way I speak, I love and adore him. Mm-hmm. You know, but there are certain aspects of his maleness that I believe are, you know, uh, are more chemical and have more to do with not things that he's being taught. Uh, there's a way that he lives in his body you know, like he plays big and he, he, there's, a, there's a, a physicality to him. Now, I was a, quote, tomboy. Now we don't use those terms. But growing up, it was very much like that. I loved playing with my son and wrestling with my son. Um, but, you know, we gave him these toys and these dolls. But he loves taking things apart. He loves his mind works a certain way. And so I, he's very different than I am. You know, he's very into science and into math. And I'm more into, he's agnostic and has been self-identified as an agnostic since he was about six or seven, actually. Oh, I love it. And so for a very spiritual person, he loves meat. I'm a vegan and I, you know, and so forth. When he's with me, he, he's vegan. But, you know, so I have had to question not only myself and who I am, but I have to, because I'm responsible for him, he belongs to me and I belong to him, to explain mm-hmm. things to him. So as I've, you know, spoken to him about himself, because I have noticed, and one of the things that for me as a person has been the most heartbreaking as it relates to raising a black son, and, and, and I'll just say, you know, for listeners that I'm light-skinned and my son is darker-skinned. 
and he's quite dark skinned actually. And I remember him, he'd make remarks about my being white or he would say that I was white, right? As he was, you know, learning about race and difference and, you know, he was about three or four, you know, why am I dark and you're white mommy? And I would say, I'm not white, I'm black. And that blackness comes in many, many, many different shades, so I had to affirm that. And it took a couple of years, honestly, to consistently tell him that. Um, But he was just interested in, like, who he was and why I looked different than he did. But I've always been very honest and open with him. But when he was very little as a black boy, I felt people, and when I, when I say people, I mean white people. We live in a predominantly white, we live in the valley in, in California outside of Los Angeles. It's very Latino and uh, very white. Is that people's perceptions and people's behaviors, of what, how they looked at my son and how they behaved around him changed from when he was a baby and a toddler to now. And my son is a big 11-year-old, and he's very tall. I'm 5'8". He's likely going to be 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, I have a couple of cousins who are 7 foot. So he's a mm-hmm. big, broad fellow. Mm-hmm. But this notion that blackness is threatening, right, and I've read about it in books. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people have talked about it, and we, we talk about it in the context of police brutality in particular, um, but how people get profiled and others and are menacing, you know, this this idea that blackness is an issue or problem to address, to control. I see that, you know, where people, I believe, and he says as well, people treat him and say different things to him because of his complexion, his darkness, his kinky hair, and so forth. So I think for me, being a parent and caring so deeply and feeling responsible for this little being, this person, this human, um, just makes things different. And so when the whole George Floyd thing happened, for example, um, I was filled with anger, which was, you know, something that I had experienced even in my early 20s and what have you around these types of things and a sadness, but a fear for what continuing to have a society like we have means for my son and his experiences. And I said during a, a meeting um, at my, my work with, you know, with, I think there were about 100 people there, and it was very emotional for me. And I did a piece called Beautiful Black Boy in response because I needed to create something beautiful and something endearing and something sweet in the acknowledgement of, of him and just black boys everywhere. And, and I have done a, a, a number of images of him um, as divine with halos, etc. And I did a, a picture, mm-hmm. I think the probably the most fitting visual representation of what it has meant to be a mother and a mother of a black son is there's a mother and child piece that I do, I, mm-hmm. that I depicted, um, where my son is central and he's wearing a Pokemon shirt, which he loved, by the way, when he saw the painting, <laughs> oh my God, Pokemon, I was like, I'm glad that you see that, because that's for you. <laughs> and I depicted mm-hmm. him, and my face you can only see the bottom portion of my face, like my lips. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. embracing my son because really it's about him. And when you become a mother, as anyone who has children knows, um, it's important for me to feel whole and complete and to have agency in my own thing, which I absolutely do. But there's also a large part of me that thinks beyond me as an individual and he is an extension of me and I am an extension of him because he is this embodiment he, 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 you know, he grew for me in a way, in a sense, or whatever, from, my, from his other mother and myself in many respects, but he's his own little being 
you know, he, he truly is, and I've learned uh, a lot from him. But I, I, I feel concerned, you know, for his safety and for his emotional, and even more than his physical safety, because I'm concerned about that, but his emotional and uh, psychological and mental safety as well, because I feel like our society is so harsh uh, when it comes to representations of brown bodies and brown people, and we so devalue. There's so many, so much messaging around his complexion, for example, not being beautiful. And so, from the time he was very little, many of us do this. I call. I don't believe in hierarchies and monarchies and all these things at all. I'm not even into that. But he's a prince to me, and I convey mm. that to him. I want him to walk through the world recognizing not only his legacy and who, where he comes from, but who he is and the value that he carries just from simply being. He doesn't have to do anything, say anything, be any particular way, but just because he exists. I mean, fundamentally, that is what I wish to gift to him. And so when I do pieces, I, I often think of that. Um, and sometimes, like, I had him do an affirmation uh, he understands what they are. I have them all, like, on my mirror, and I use them, et cetera. And he said, I think he said, I look good today. And then he takes that on his wall so that as he's leaving mm. his bedroom, he can see this and recognize he's, he's, this, he's beautiful. He's smart, and I've always told him how smart he is and, you know, sensitive, and I, and I often encourage those things as well. But I also want him to know, you know, that his hair is gorgeous. The texture is gorgeous. Saddens mm-hmm. me that we still say things like good and bad hair. I know. Mm-hmm. Like, what is that in 2020? Like, seriously? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, so I, I, I understand things differently, I think, from, from theory to practice. And also, I think, because of my connection uh, to him and, you know, he looks to me to make sense of this, the ludicrousness at times of our society and things that exist in the world and to try to find words to explain to a child why these things are happening, why someone wrote the word nigger, for example, on a bathroom wall at an elementary school. Like, what is that? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that is, is a very different task than just to understand it for myself as an adult woman who has all of this experience, right? Um, but to a child, I think there's a, an innocence and a desire to understand things and for things to make sense. And a lot of that stuff doesn't make sense. We can intellectualize it and historicize it and kind of kind of make sense of it a little bit. But still and yet, you know, I believe we are all one. I believe we, we all, each and every one of us has value. Um, and so for there to be such division in our society and hierarchy is disheartening. So. Mm-hmm. When I look at the one you were talking about where he's in the Pokemon shirt, it, 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 make, it makes me feel something in my heart. Do you know what I mean? Because, like you said, he's mm-hmm. right in the center, and there's that halo. And, it, if you, and, and Kizzy knows. Kizzy's a mom. You know, when you hold mm-hmm. him, there's something about it, it just reaches right in and grabs your heart. And that's what I saw, I saw in there. You know, it said it all. You know, like about what being a mother is and, and that love that you have, which is like, you know, the greatest love. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And I, and I wouldn't have known that if you had asked me at 35, 
you know, like what, what do you think this will mean and how do you think this will change you? It, it's kind of like for me, I turned 50 this year. I could have never conceived of what it would have meant to be middle-aged, right? And in my, and in my mind, I've pushed middle-aged now to 80 or 70, you know what I'm saying? I take some issue with how we view youth, you know, and how we view aging just generally, but I'm not ashamed. I'm very proud uh, to have lived to see 50. It's absolutely a blessing and a gift, and so I really wish we would talk differently about aging as a process, but not until I became pregnant, not until I gave birth, not until, you know, certain things happened to me. It's like there are these secret societies in which people don't talk about what that is as an experience, like menopause. It's like this mystery still. Most people, mm-hmm. men and women, don't know what that is or how to embrace it, how to ritualize it, how to experience it, how to find joy in it and celebrate it. You know, and, and I think there's something to be said about that and, and just the whole aging experience. So if motherhood for me was very much like that. I, I, I had no idea what it was until I experienced it. And then when I did, I was like, whoa, wow. Yes. It is both the most rewarding and has been one of the more challenging things I've done in my entire life. But mm-hmm. I have learned and grown and expanded, you know, my thinking and my emotional capacity because of this experience and this relationship that I have with my son. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, going back to, you know, spirituality, motherhood is definitely a spiritual journey. Just, you know, Mm -hmm. it provokes the healing work, you know, the the triggers that your your child, Mm -hmm. you know, brings out. Um, Yeah, just, you know, spirituality has been a very... Uh, have we seen that, you know, deeply resonates throughout this, this uh, conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the notion of the trigger is hugely important. I think initially when I learned of this idea of being triggered, it's like, Ooh, let's, let's avoid the triggers. Let's move away from the triggers. But, you know, there, there are a lot of people who talk about the triggers as opportunity for growth and healing. And there's a book called Radical Forgiveness by Colin Tippings, which is a very incredible book um, that, uh, you know, we learn about the utility of radical forgiveness. And it's not like regular forgiveness in which you have to not only forgive and forget and sort of make good with or friends with the individual who's harmed you or you perceive has harmed you. But for me, I realized that there is um, a spiritual component to having experienced certain things so that I could better understand myself and to forgive is to let go to me, for me personally, this is how I perceive it. And also, uh, you know, things trigger us uh, because there's something deep inside and often we repress things and suppress them and we don't want to deal with it and it's maybe subconscious even or whatever, but it, a, a trigger because we are so, you know, affected by a thing is a place to investigate, to illuminate, to shed light, to open, to examine, to look, you know. And then it's there that when we do that, and so for me, my art has been that. Actually, I talked about doing a lot of artwork in my journal, that when I do that and I'm doing these spontaneous paintings and drawings, I'm dealing with things on a subconscious level that I'm not even consciously thinking of. And then I look at what I've drawn or done, the words, the text that I've added, and then I examine that. 
And then I look at that and my relationship to that. And I think by doing that through the process of examining um, and really, you know, coming to terms with what has happened and then letting it go and forgiving, like the childhood trauma that I spoke of, it does that. But with my son, who is very sensitive, and I've always been very sensitive, my response to his being sensitive has been an absolutely mind-boggling surprise because when he is crying or when he is hurt or when he is frustrated, it makes me uncomfortable. And so intellectually, I'm like, but Berlina, you've always been that crier. You've been that one quick to, to tear up, to, you know, go inside, to whatever. How could you be uncomfortable with this? Because as a child, I was told, stop crying. You, wanna, you know, you want something to cry about? I'll give you something to cry about. Mm-hmm. Sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So we give this message to children over and over and over again that emotionality mm-hmm. is not okay. Being a sensitive mm-hmm. is not okay. Being in touch with, you know, especially for a boy. You know, so I had to really unpack a lot of that. And this was big work. But he, because he's so sensitive, I got to see aspects of myself that I had yet not accepted fully. And I get to heal those parts. And in doing so, I'm a better mother. I'm a better, you know what I'm saying, a better supporter and a better role model for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just in light of wrapping up, what's on the horizon for you? Have you been creating uh, art during this quarantine? Um, what what has you know quarantine been like for you? Yeah, yeah. So um, I work at home like many of us do, but to me, it's such a privilege to, to be perfectly honest to have job security, and, and I recognize that, and to not have to deal with the, the Los Angeles commute, because oftentimes I would spend about two hours a day in my car commuting, so I can actually mm-hmm. spend that time at home, either in my studio. A lot of times when I'm inspired, I'll get up at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning to paint for, you know, several, three or four hours before I start my job, because I realized I wanted to use my best mind, my freshest mind on my artwork, which to me is my life's purpose. And I enjoy aspects of my job or, or my career, but, but uh, to me, they're very, they're very different. And so I've been able to produce a lot, a lot of work and to paint uh, a lot. Actually, I, I worked um, on a LGBT um, black historical figures series, and I have about eight or nine people uh, in the series. They're uh, done in gray. Uh, or black and white, and they, they're haloed figures, but people like Audre Lorde and um, the, uh, Marsha P. Johnson and yeah. um, just a lot of different, different figures, blues musicians, um, politicians, literary figures, um, a, a great many people. Um, and so um, I was able to, to work on that. And to me, that's a, a separate project, but I very much am into giving homage and thinking about where I come from and the people who have gone before me and lived their lives so stupendously under incredible circumstances. And I think sometimes what 2020 is like, and then I think what would it have been like to be in the Harlem Renaissance, you know, to be these key figures um, and to be out, because many of these people were out and some of them were not, but whatever. I mean, it's complicated. So, so there's that piece. Um, but then I, as I've been thinking about my paintings as being affirmations um, and thinking about vulnerability and thinking about sort of the anxiety that at times I have felt around different issues and what have you, I've been putting intentionality into addressing those things in, in some of my pieces. So in one of my pieces, it, it, it initially was 
I called it, and I love naming things, um, but it was called letting go, which to me is different than surrendering. And mm-hmm. it's uh, from a, a, a portrait, uh, and I just finished it and started another one, um, but it's uh, done from a, a selfie that I took, um, and my eyes are cast down. It's three-quarter, and there's a bird. I love crows. They're um, connectors between the spirit realm and this realm. Um, this is a very spiritual communicators to me, but it's emanating from my sixth and my seventh chakra. And then I have a sunflower, which symbolizes optimism at my heart chakra, because I'm very hopeful, right? I have lots of optimism. But prior to doing this piece, I was very filled with a lot of angst and anxiety about some, some personal issues, and I think just the pandemic and all that is happening. And I said, I'm not going to focus on, I'll acknowledge them, I'll meditate, I'll focus on my breath, and then I'll create this piece. And so that's what I did. And then there's a butterfly because butterflies speak of transformation. So there's Mm -hmm. a butterfly above the bird that's going beyond me out into the atmosphere. And it's also filled with the cosmology or the sky, the night sky, the stars, because I feel very connected to the stars, the moon, the constellations, and all of those things. But they also symbolize to me spirituality and, you know, like stillness, something about the stillness and consciousness also. So I did that, and it's a very small piece. But I want to do much larger paintings as well, and I think this last year I've done many, many paintings, and a lot of these works have never been exhibited. And besides being on Facebook, um, they haven't been seen by people. So my next task really is to continue to produce these works. I'm very inspired, and I cannot paint fast enough, to be honest. Um, Mm -hmm. Like every day, every day, every day, every day, getting up, you know, after work, just painting madly and, and um, is to have an exhibit. And so I've explored having a virtual exhibit and have asked some people about, you know, how I could do that and have done some research. So I've thought about putting together some sort of virtual exhibit, but I think my next step really is to share the work and to hear your, your feedback and to hear how you perceive it has been really helpful to me in, in a lot of ways because I think first as an artist and the kind of artist that I feel I am, it's important to be true to my vision and true to, to what I believe and what is important to me. But I've always known that ultimately I want to share my work more. And so I see a great shift um, in, in sort of my practice to be more inclusive of sharing my work more broadly. Uh, but also I see in the future doing work of other people also, and also communities of people. So I really want to work much larger and talk about relationships between people um, as well as, you know, and I think, again, many of my paintings have been self-portraits, but I, I want to deal with relationships as well, my personal relationships, but how we relate to other people, how we allow ourselves to feel connected. And, again, as I said, I know all caps, that ultimately we, we are all but one, right? Mm-hmm. I believe in this, in this global sense of our being one. And so I, I, I want to depict that and represent that and really be, like, remind us of that. You know, when people see my work, and I love that you said you see it and you think of meditation, and not just meditation like, um, which as a principle, <laughs> I use that own symbol in my work emanating from seven chakra for what it is, you know, in terms of what it represents from a vibrational perspective and what have you. But I, but I think that meditation 
can occur all the time in all that we do. I believe in walking meditation, meditating while one. It's a state of mind and a, and a way of being intentional and conscious in the world, and we can literally shift at any moment, you know, from thinking about the exterior and these experienced situations so strongly impacting how we feel to me is something that I'm interested in changing such that I more, like I said before, more often feel calm and peace and joy. And it's good to be reminded of my humanness and to experience anger, but then to move beyond it is healthy to me personally. That's how I envision it. And so that when people see my work, maybe it will remind them to care for themselves, to be, to take breath. We are so, I, I can speak for myself, so disconnected from my body and from my breath that mm-hmm. I remind myself of doing that. So when I am surrounded by my work and my crystals and my this and my that, these are exterior reminders of things that, that are with, they reside within me, but I forget. Mm. Uh, well, Belina, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about it. I look forward to seeing more of your work. I think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and this conversation has been wonderful. I, uh, as you create more, I hope that we can talk again and go over more. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, You're very welcome. I would really like to thank both of you um, also uh, for this opportunity, not only to speak some, about my work, but the both of you, and I don't know quite how to say this exactly, but are so excellent at asking questions and inquisitive and clearly, you know, you know, I know your background a little bit, uh, Michelle, but you have done research and you're coming informed and, you know, just gave me an opportunity that most people would not even begin to know how to ask me about my work. Clearly, you know what I'm saying, if that makes any sense at Mm -hmm. all. And so I feel like this is a very unique, has been a very unique opportunity. And the fact that you know about Reiki, as an example, like you know know intimately about Reiki and its process, like Mm -hmm. clearly if I had said some of the, most of what I've said in the context of this interview to a great many people, they would have either been dismissive or they would have been unsure mm. on where to go next because they wouldn't have had any idea what I was talking about at all. We would have been speaking slightly different languages. So I really appreciate you all being so authentic and generous and caring uh, in your interview with me. My co-host, Kizzy Joseph, and I want to thank our guest, Verlina Johnson. Verlina is a multimedia artist whose artwork includes drawing, painting, sculpture, puppetry, performance, and video. She shares her journey in expressing art from the political to the personal and how visual art can be a healing force in our lives, not only for the artists, but the spectator too. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can support the podcast by becoming a sponsor of Collections by Michelle Brown on Patreon.com. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on Google Play Music, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. 
Join us next week when we'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.